remember we've made this point. The, the point of this is looking at God, women, and the healing of humanity. We've made the point that, that the fundamental arc of the Bible is that God sets us up as women and men to relate, relate to each other on the basis of mutuality, that we're made uh, equal. Mutuality and equality. And all of Scripture really unpacks that. Uh, that that mutuality and equality is attacked by, by human sin and evil, and we struggle to live that out. But that in Jesus Christ, God is redeeming and healing how we relate to each other. And that there's a very exciting vision for the church that we can be a working model of what this redeemed way of relating looks like uh, for a world that is confused and struggling in all kinds of ways in this area. So that's our calling, to live out in front of the world how women and men can relate to each other with equality and mutuality. Uh, And so we're unpacking that. And then last week we looked at the wonderful story of Sarah, and the point that I remember most is that um, sin is an equal opportunity employer, and that uh, Sarah, like all the great heroes of Scripture, is deeply and tragically flawed. Um, And so that was sort of last week's sermon. I think I must have said more. I just can't remember at the moment, which begs the question of why it took me so long to say it. But uh, there we go. That that was last week. Um, I also wanted to say that a number of you have had questions to me and comments about how do we unpack this in more detail, specifically around the the issues of the role of women in church, uh, various roles, Um, how we understand the ordination of women, how we understand ordination, uh, and the particular ways in which this might work out in our marriages, uh, gender roles in marriage, submission of husbands to their wives, and so forth. Um, And uh, so I thought rather than dealing with those in a sermon on a Sunday, what we're going to do is a uh, a seminar one evening to just unpack this. And what I want to do is treat it a bit like a um, an academic seminar where I'll unpack and lay before you all the various, the, the landscape of this debate. Um, and it's a complicated debate. It's a heated debate. Uh, it's a debate that, needs, that is informed not just by exegesis of a particular bunch of texts, but also by the, the sociology and the politics and the ideology and the psychology and the group dynamics that are going around. So my plan at the moment, unless um, someone who is more organized than me tells me otherwise, we'll do this on Tuesday, May the 30th. And we'll do it in here. We'll have an hour and a half. Uh, you know, probably there'll be three people here to listen, and we might not record it, um, though we'll see. And we'll just try and do all this, outline this, because I know most of you don't have the time to read 20 books on the ordination of women and where the women can preach and teach. And so I've done all that because I don't have a life, and um, I can, uh, I'll try and distill that and make it available to you. Sound okay? Let's pray now as we think about this. Jesus, speak to us through this amazing story. Uh, uh, of these women who saved a nation and, uh, and inspire us and equip us that we might take our place in the world as their spiritual descendants. And we ask this in your great name, Lord. Amen. Uh, so here's the big question that uh, Exodus 1 raises when, and, and actually goes on into Exodus 2, the opening chapters of the central book of the Old Testament that is the, the paradigm, the fundamental saving story of the people of God. And the big question it raises in, this, these, first two quest, in these first two chapters is, um, where is God? Uh, you might not have realized this is a question, but when you read these two chapters that open up the book, 
God is strangely absent. He's just not mentioned, right? Uh, Well, actually, I lie. He's mentioned twice to commend the Hebrew midwives. All the rest of the action is done by other actors, by evil people and by good people. And God is absent. And isn't that weird? Now, if you've thought about this, uh, this book that is going to tell the story of this mighty act of God to save his people starts in the context of extraordinary evil and injustice and hardship. I mean, look at it. Look at, I mean, these people, the Egypt, the, the, God has taken his people, Israel, into Egypt. He got them there in the first place. And then there was a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing comes into power. And he goes, listen, uh, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they'll become even more numerous. So demographics are destiny then and now. And uh, if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. The Pharaoh was, and the whole Egyptian economy was incredibly leveraged to the Hebrew workforce. I mean, they, they did the work. So like if, you're, if half your workers left, it would be, you know, like would happen in America if Trump, uh, you know, um, <laughs> deported all the illegal migrants. Well, who'd do all the difficult, dirty, boring, and dangerous jobs in America if, if all the, uh, you know, Mexicans were deported? You know, like actually these, these people who do this work, the, the whole economy and country is massively leveraged to these people. And he's scared, and he's evil, so he says, let's make them slaves, let's work them ruthlessly. And, and then the text in verse 12 and 13 makes sure that just, just you know, highlights how ruthlessly they are worked uh, by the Egyptians. But then they keep breeding, and breeding, and breeding, so he goes, here's what I'll do, slavery's not enough, let's do genocide. Let's commit cultural genocide. Uh, by massacring uh, at birth all the Hebrew sons. You go, okay, Lord, where are you in that? Well, actually, uh, where is God in that? It's not just an academic question, you see, isn't it? Because this is the question for us as well. I mean, we live in a world full of violence and injustice, don't we? Not so much here in Sydney, though it happens. You look around the world today and you say, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? What Exodus 1 and 2 teaches us is, guess what? What is God doing? God God is actually at work in the background. He's at work powerfully in the background, even in the context of great suffering and evil. Even though the Israelites couldn't see him at work, he was at work. That's our lives, right? That's our lives. God is at work, the Bible says, even when at times the veil of suffering obscures every action that he might be taking. God is at work in the background even when it seems like evil and injustice will and are triumphing. How do I know this from the text? Well, actually, it's very cleverly told, this story. Uh, Pharaoh has all the power in the story. God doesn't show up in the forefront, and yet everything that Pharaoh does and thinks he's going to achieve, the exact opposite turns out, doesn't it? So Pharaoh says, I'm going to oppress them, make them slaves, work them so hard that they can't reproduce. What happens? Hmm. Um, Well, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. 
it's kind of, you know, like whack-a-mole, you know, you just, that, he's trying to whack the, the Israelites down and they just keep popping up everywhere. He thinks he's going he's gonna to deal with the problem. He just makes his problem worse. So then his genocide says, I'm going to destroy every, uh, every boy who's born. What happens? Well, we didn't read chapter 2, but I have it here. Um, the, uh, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Par and titch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Quick, let's kill him like my dad said I should. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go? To one uh, and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you. Yes, uh, actually, I, did I? She was crying and she felt sorry for him. That's the point I meant to make. Yes, she, go, she answered. So the girl went, got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the tri- child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. So Pharaoh has this plan. I'm going to kill all the baby boys, and then that's going to secure my, uh, my nation, and my plans are going to be great. What does God do? He says, you think that that's how it's going to work? And he uses the civil disobedience of the midwives. He uses his own daughter's disobedience and pity and compassion, and he takes a Hebrew son, and he organizes that the Hebrew son's mother will be paid out of his bank account to raise this boy, and then this boy will be taken into Pharaoh's court and raised in the center of power and influence and privilege in the court of Egypt to, get, to be raised as the Pharaoh's grandson so he will have everything he needs to lead a nation. Isn't that? Huh. That's just brilliant. God is at work behind the scenes in ways that Pharaoh couldn't begin to imagine and in ways that you and I often can't even see when the veil of suffering and injustice and evil covers us. But he's at work. Romans 8.28 says that God works in all things and God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Uh, as spiritual descendants of this story, this is the God we serve. And I love it. Just when evil people think that they're going to get the last uh, word, God turns up and says, no, what you intended for evil, I intended for good. That's Satan on Good Friday, isn't it? That's Satan going, yep, I have defeated God. There's a cosmic rebellion that Satan has led against the creator God. And this rebellion existed before the foundations of the world. It's been worked out on the stage of human history. And now the Bible says on Good Friday, it seems Satan goes, yep, I've won. All my great plans have come to pass. I've finally defeated God. 
And in the absence of God on Good Friday, that is in fact when God is working most powerfully to overcome Satan. So what, what Satan thought was his greatest victory turns out to be what? His greatest defeat. Isn't that good? In our moments of suffering and hardship and confusion, when we look out on the world, don't let us ever for a moment think that just because we can't see God center stage acting here and now, that he isn't backstage working everything together for his greatest glory and our greatest good. That's the first thing we learn. How does God work uh, in the world? How does he work? Well, he works through people, doesn't he? He works through people. This is what he's doing, you see. Uh, how does he work there? Well, he's working. He is there. He's in the background, but he's doing it through people. <laughs> These wonderful Hebrew midwives, Pharaoh's daughter. Um, the fact that God works through people is a, at least a partial answer to the problem of God's seeming absence, isn't it? And it's an answer that, brothers and sisters, I find extraordinarily challenging. Don't you? Man. Because, you see, we look out in the world and people say, Oh, how can I believe in God when there's so much suffering and injustice? Where is God in this? Do you know what my answer, what my more burning question is now? When I'm tempted to think, where is God in this? Do you know what the question is in my heart coming out of Exodus 1? Is where are we in this? <laughs> where are God's people? I mean, most of the evil in the world happens as a result of what other people do to people. Isn't that right? And, and most of it most of the evil in the world is entirely preventable. So when I look at the evil in the world, now I mean, okay, so I, I understand. I'm not naive. I, I get that there's a mystery around evil. I'm not talking about health, cancer, dementia, all the other terrible things that afflict us. I'm not talking about natural disasters, though typically even they... <laughs> You know, earthquakes don't kill people when building codes are enforced and buildings are built according to code and no one's corrupt. No building inspectors are, are bribed off so you can use substandard concrete and skimp on the reinforcing and avoid the codes. Your buildings last if you're built well. But, you know, even natural disasters cause untold misery when, con when human evil contributes to it. So for me, I go, where, where am I? Nineteen ninety four in Rwanda. Where is God in Rwanda? The bigger question is where were we as the international community? The scourge of domestic violence in the city of Sydney. Where is God in the context of domestic violence? Well here's the question where are we as the church? As the people of God, why, don't, why aren't we embedded deeply enough in our communities and neighborhoods so we know what's going on and we're there as redemptive healing agents of justice and transformation to make sure that no woman or child or man can be battered and live in terror of their lives in their own home while the rest of the suburb and the city turns a blind eye. Where are we?
God uses people. Now, that's all a bit heavy for a Sunday morning. And you go, well, I can't go and combat genocide in Rwanda. But listen, you know what's interesting about, all, about these midwives? <laughs> Is God used their vocation, their work, just doing what they were trained and skilled to do to actually bring about the salvation of the whole people of God. And isn't that extraordinary? So I got, it got me thinking. Don't, don't get all depressed, like, well, I can't stop genocide, so I can't do anything. Also don't think, the only work that God really uses is the work of professionally religious people. So unless I'm up front preaching and teaching, or I'm leading a Bible study, uh, God can't use me. I mean, that's a common misconception. Utterly not true. God uses midwives. You read the Bible. God uses ordinary people in their vocations doing their everyday work to change the world. That's what he does. So let me just do a little thought exercise. Uh, How is God using you in your vocation to push back evil and injustice and to bring God's kingdom into this world? To work. How are you working with God? How are you experiencing God at work with, with you? You see, Christianity, this is not the Christian life. I mean, it's a great part of it here on a Sunday, you know, listening to a sermon that smacks you around the head and makes you think and singing songs. But this isn't it. This isn't the the climax of your Christian experience, is it? I mean, if it is, (laughs) God help us all. Um, What God is really interested in is how he's going to use you tomorrow morning and Tuesday night. So when you go to court to, you know, prosecute terrorists, Michelle, God is using you. You are being used by God. When you're managing a building, Russell, and you're bringing order out of chaos and you're making the residence environment work, you're bringing order out of chaos. And who knows what God is going to do for you? pick with another Russell when you're building stadiums and and, and you're creating order and beauty in the built environment God is using you right when you're working out school IT systems ants and you're saying how do we use technology to apply to the educational process so that men and so, so boys and girls can grow and flourish to be great glorious people made in the image of God who knows how God is going to use that who knows what's going to come through that? But, but, but what I do know is that God wants to use us in our, in our vocations to accomplish his purposes. Hey? I just picked on a few. Could pick on more. When you're building sheds, when you're running a law firm, when you're setting up audiovisual installations, when you're parenting your kids full time. You know, I mean, just when you're running projects and managing projects and you know, God is it. Don't underestimate how God can use you Monday to Saturday. That's his plan. That's what we see in Exodus 1, right? So God uses people. He uses us in our vocation. There is value and dignity to work. And only history, only eternity will record exactly what it is that he has done through your faithful obedience in the Monday to Saturday of your life, right? Okay. Uh, what kind of people... Oh, let me ask it. Which people does God use? Actually, that's, I'm trying to figure out the, the grammar here on the help, sorry. Um, who does God use? 
right? Who does he use? Does he, does he wait? And this is a temptation. You might be thinking, well, if God's going to use me, I've got to be some great, faithful, amazing person. I've got to be a CEO. I've got to be this or that or the other thing. My goodness, who's he using? On the first instance, he's using slaves, no power, no agency, utterly vulnerable. He's using female slaves, okay? So we've established in the previous sermons, patriarchal society. There are men, there are women, and there are animals. So they are low-status slaves. You might not have noticed this, though. They're even within the women of Israel. They're even lower status. Why? Why are they low-status within Israel? Here's the text, here's the answer. They're barren. At the point of their obedience and the point at which God used them to, in, to, to rebel against the Pharaoh and save a nation, they were barren women of an enslaved people. You didn't get anyone who has lower status than that, right? Remember we talked last week? Barrenness was the greatest shame you could have. Huh. Oh my goodness. That's who God uses. Do not ever think for a moment that you are too inadequate, too sinful, too damaged, too weak to be used by God. If he can use these midwives at at a hinge point in human history, he can use you, which is just great news. I think. Uh, But he used these women. So he used, uh, who does God use? Uh, Low-status women. But there are a particular class of low-status women. There are low-status women who fear God, don't they? That's, That's who he uses, people who actually fear God. This is what motivates them, isn't it? Verse 21, because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. They lie. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the the boys live. Who does God use to change the world? He uses people who say, you know what? My ultimate allegiance is to God. So fear has all the connotations of scared. And at one level, God is scary. If there is such a God, I think it's okay to be just a little bit, woo-hoo. But, but this, deep, the, the word, this deep sense that God is all-powerful and it, their ultimate allegiance was to God. Now, that's huge. Because they disobeyed a tyrannical, genocidal, totalitarian, fascist ruler who had the ultimate power of life or death over them. They disobeyed and they lied. They committed civil disobedience. I love that because they feared God. Sometimes people think that, uh, and you may think this a lot as well, think that religion does more harm than good in the world. I hear that quite a bit. And I, for sure, when religion is tied to politics or economics, religion gone bad can be terrible. But the greatest movements and acts in human history 
have sprung from a religious impulse. When we believe something to be right and that we're accountable to God, that trumps and overrides everything else, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, you just think about current state of world religions. How else do you get people to blow themselves up and commit horrendous crimes? Because they fear God as they understand it. And so will do the most extraordinary acts because they fear God. The difference, by the way, between us and, and global jihadist Islam is what happens when Christians fear God more than anything else? <laughs> they give their lives for justice and for the poor and for the weak and for the vulnerable and for children. That's what happens. We lay our lives down for others at great risk. Now, um, this has been one of the seminal texts. Unlike many of you, as I look out, I grew up in a context uh, in, in the anti-apartheid years in South Africa, and pre, pre, prior to that in, uh, in kind of the, the, the Civil War in Rhodesia and the, the, the terrible kind of racist, oppressive regime there. And um, I became a Christian in South Africa and had to figure out what did it look like as a, as a white, privileged Christian to follow Jesus in the context of some really evil and unjust laws. And I came to the view that there, is a, there would come a point um, where, where I have to fear God more than the laws of the land and where civil disobedience is legitimate and called for. And I, it was funny, you know, I came to Australia and I still remember very clearly, it was such a culture shock. Came to a college uh, here in Sydney um, and studying theology. And I just, you know, it was a, a college that still... And, and, a, and a worldview and an experience of Christianity where, where the state and the church were still very deeply connected and, and the Anglican church felt that they were very much part of the establishment. And so um, what was taught was, you know, Romans 13, that we sub must submit to all sorts of governing authorities and we're very ordered and we're good citizens. And, and I thought, but there comes a time as a Christian when God might call us to stand up and disobey and even die for our faith, Right? And I had a long, I had a, my first experience of this, I, I think I was, you know, 20. In fact, I know I was. And I had a public disagreement with a very prominent Christian at a very large convention site up in the Blue Mountains uh, that shall remain nameless. And the, 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 the initials of this prominent Christian leader, an amazing guy and a godly guy, but he was talking about the roles of Christians in politics. And, and I remember, I, you know, time for questions after his talk on a Saturday night at Katoomba Christian Convention, and I stuck my hand up and the mic comes around and... And with my boyish charm and completely non-polemical, gentle, South African Jewish way, I suggested to him that the only way he could hold the views he held was that he'd spend his entire life living in the eastern suburbs of Sydney in a well-functioning liberal democracy with a functioning justice system, and he hadn't had to forge his faith in the context of evil and injustice and oppression. Um, what makes one of the reasons I love being a Christian and a follower of Jesus is I look over 2,000 years and I see women and men who will stand up and say no to evil and injustice even if it costs them their lives. Now, that might not be what is called of us. We might not be asked ever in our situation to have to make, make a stand like this, but I want to ask you this question. You know, would you be willing to? Under God, would you stand up and say, I'm going to fear God more than anyone else. I'm going to do what's right. Might not cost you your life, but it might cost you your promotion. 
might let, might cost you that deal, might cost you the love of your life. Will you do that? That's, that's what these women show us. That's what they do. They feared God. Now, here's another concern I have. I, I'm so worried about our culture because I see as we become increasingly secular that there isn't any longer the intellectual or spiritual or moral impulse that will lead women and men and children to stand for what is right, even at great personal cost to themselves. I mean, we might still do it, but when your driving values of a culture are are, are tolerance, expressive individualism, uh, and uh, personal peace and affluence, so what we've got to tolerate everybody, which is, I'm a big fan of tolerance. Uh, expressive individualism says, I become truly who I am when I express my inner desires. No one else can tell me what to do. And I channel all of that into the pursuit of personal peace and affluence. And if that's the spiritual and moral impulse of our city and of our country and of our world, then what are we going to stand on against evil one day? How are we ever going to have the capacity to look modern-day slavery in the eyes and say, "We we will not rest until all are free? Where? So I worry about that. Now, by God's grace, we might, in the face of great adversity as a nation and as a culture, find resources to stand for what is true and right even at great cost to ourselves, but it worries me. So religion, Christianity, when rightly understood, provides the best foundation of all to stand. Because on this foundation of standing, of fearing God, it's not going to motivate us to serve our own interests. It's always going to move us to stand for the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and the weak and the vulnerable. That's what these women teach us. So who does God use? Well, he uses women who fear God... But these aren't the only women he uses. Isn't that right? He uses women who have pity. And these are high-status women, aren't they? Who's that? Pharaoh's daughter. What moved her? She had pity. I'm going to make a slightly polemical, unusual for me, uh, comment in the context of our city and our particular spiritual tribe. Uh, God used the daughter of a pagan, genocidal, homicidal, totalitarian, fascist ruler. A daughter who benefited in every way from her father's evil. She lived a life of privilege and, and, and she did not actually care about God at all. And yet he used her because she had pity. She was what in Jewish, the Jewish world we call a righteous Gentile. Yes. So while at one level I'm a little sad that we don't have the intellectual basis as a culture anymore to stand for what is ultimately right, I'm not completely, I'm not completely pessimistic because you know what? Deep in the heart of every human being is the capacity for pity. And we, we need to find as Christian people and work with uh, people whose hearts are moved by injustice 
and whose hearts are moved with pity for those who are weak and oppressed and we need to work with them, irrespective of what they believe, I think, we can become co-belligerents in this war against evil and suffering in the world as we work with people who are moved by pity. Uh, and that's an important point to make. Some of you may not get the political force of that, but there are some in, the, in every Christian circle who say, well, we don't want to be polluted by working with people, other agencies and other organizations who disagree with us, with governments. This is not a call for withdrawal from government or from secular agencies or from working with Muslims or working with Buddhists or working with Hindus. You know, if they are moved by pity and we can find ways to work together to end human suffering, I think this story tells us get in the, get in the game. You know, it's okay to work with high-status people, and I think that's encouraging as well because most of us here, we're Pharaoh's daughters. We're not the midwives, right? We're high-status, um, and we need to move by pity. So um, that was the introduction. I'm joking. There is a question that all this raises for me. Uh, why does God work this way I mean couldn't he just have gone cut straight to Moses strong champion comes and beats the snot out of Pharaoh and rescues his people why go through all these lengths to set the story up in this way why women why do the first two chapters the, why are the main actors low status women here's why I think I think because uh, this is show, giving us a glimpse of the very heart and nature of God and the very nature of creation. Heart or nature of God. What do I mean by that? Well, I'm going to draw a very complicated picture now that's going to show you What I mean by that? Um, it started buzzing. Anyway, I'll show you a very complicated picture that's going to show you what I mean. This is this is a way to diagram the heart and the nature of God and the heart and nature of reality, isn't it? What's the path to greatness in the world? to go down in humility and service. How does God, how does God enter our world? How does God enter our world? Well, look at this. God sets up, God introduces the Exodus story in this way to prepare us for his own coming in Christ. Because this is this is how Jesus came, who being in very nature God, Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being found, made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Why did God save his people Israel through barren female slaves? 
It's because he was going to save the world through a naked, tortured, crucified Jew, oppressed and crushed by a genocidal, totalitarian regime who didn't just risk his life to fear God rather than the Romans and their Jewish leaders, but who actually gave his life. That's our God. He is a God who says that he will come and empty himself. There is no glory without the cross. There is no good Easter Sunday without Good Friday. And this is the very nature of reality. If you and I want to flourish in this world, if we want to be truly great, then the only way up is down. To humble ourselves. To pursue downward mobility in service of others. To spend our lives for others. That's the very nature of reality. If you grasp life in any other way, If you try and get to Easter Sunday without Good Friday, you might get a temporary bout of achievement, but you'll get an eternal bout of misery. It's the only way to glory is through the cross. The only way to greatness is through humility. The only way up is down. I just want to say there's no more significant spiritual... There, no, let me back up. There are a few more significant spiritual ancestors that we can look to than these Hebrew midwives to show us how we should live and to shine a light on the nature of Jesus and the nature of reality and what God is up to. Let's pray. Our great God, we ask you to uh, have mercy on us and uh, like these Hebrew midwives to fear you more than anything or anyone else. We pray, Jesus, that you will work now in us, even even in this very moment in this building, to fill us with that spirit of Jesus that will lead us to identify with him and with his spiritual ancestors, these Hebrew midwives, to fear you, Lord God, more than anything else, to do what is right, even at the cost of our lives. Pray for those of us who feel you know, really beaten down by life. We don't need any reminding that we are low status, we are humble. May we not lose sight of the fact that you are the God who uses people just like us. And for those of us who think that we've got it all together, and in the eyes of the world we probably do, may you guard us from the complete insanity of thinking that just because we're rich and powerful, and smart and well-resourced, that that we are more important in your plans than anyone else, and that these things are a prerequisite of being used by you. They are entirely incidental and accidental. And may you just help us use our power and privilege and wealth and status to serve and bless others and to grow your kingdom. We ask this in your great name, Lord. Amen.